0: You know, we've been talking a lot about the streaming wars lately with Disney Plus launching their new service. Well, earlier this month, I wanted to look at an interview from Reed Hastings, that man right there. He is the CEO of Netflix. He was one of the original founders. And in this interview, it's specifically on the streaming wars on services like Disney Plus, Apple TV Plus. He gets asked a lot of questions about him, and he gives some different answers than what you'd expect on on what he thinks his actual competition is, what his actual concerns are with the streaming wars. I think it's a pretty enlightening interview of how he looks at his competition and how he plans on responding to it. Another thing I wanted to look at was that Carl Icahn, he's one of the richest men in the world has made billions of dollars for himself through investing. Well, he invests mostly his own money now. Well, he has taken a short position against malls. So he's betting against malls, believing that they will fail enough that he'll make money. And I wanted to give my reaction to that because I own a lot of different real estate holdings. One of those is Simon Property that's a mall REIT. So I'll be talking about this news item as well. And then the last thing, I've been wanting to talk about this for a while, financial literacy. Obviously, a lot about this channel is getting a better overall grasp of your financial literacy. I think that should be a big focus in anybody's life. And there's different studies showing that Americans, at least, are getting financially dumber over time. So we know less about finances than we did 10 years ago. And I want to talk about this, what I think the effects are going to be. Now, before jumping into the portfolio updates or the news, I have to mention this first. I'm here on my... This is my YouTube homepage, I guess, my YouTube page. And as you can see that number right there, 50,300 subscribers. So I just passed 50,000 subscribers today. And I know YouTube it's it's all relative, right, with anything. YouTube there's people that literally have 50 million subscribers. But regardless, fifty thousand is a huge number. It's a humbling number. I appreciate everybody that has subscribed, everybody that supports the channel, that shares it with other people, and you know, writes me messages and all that type of stuff. But um, if you haven't subscribed, that's okay. Look, you know, I know how it is. I browse other channels. I see if their content's okay. Give me some time, and I'll try to earn your subscribership. So I think this will be a fun channel for you to follow. Now, for people that are new. I actually started this whole thing in february so my first upload was simply me giving an update on my portfolio that is what this is all about this is real there's a lot of stuff on youtube that isn't real this is a little bit different here what you're looking at is my portfolio it's i named it passive income but this is a real brokerage account it's on a broker called m1 finance and it's a real portfolio that has sixty six thousand dollars in it i started this portfolio two years ago i started with a hundred dollars And I've consistently deposited a portion of my income and have grown it over time. So far, it's made $9,000 in gains. But the main focus of it is growing a stream of passive income. The way that I've chosen to accomplish that is through an investment strategy called dividend growth investing. I go through that in detail in a lot of different videos. I pretty much look for companies to summarize this in like 10 seconds. I look for companies that are these large cap You know, these really big companies that they have big moats. Hopefully they can fight off competition. They can continue to grow their income and to expand their business. And they all have something in common. Disney, Costco, Target, Home Depot, and Nike, they all have something in common. And that is that they pay back their shareholders a portion of the money that they make. So as a company grows and, you know, they, they make all this money from selling their products and services, they have a portion of that income that they use to reinvest back in their business. But a lot of times these companies make more money than they need for themselves. And what they decided to do is they decided to say, hey, we'll pay back shareholders. The way that they do that is called a dividend. And I look for companies that pay dividends and that grow the amount of dividends that they pay. That's called dividend growth investing. Now, there's lots of different ways to make money in this world. There's lots of different ways to invest, and many of them are successful ways to invest. I'm not ever going to say that this is the one way you can make money. That's not anything that I say or preach. All I'm doing is showing the way that I choose to invest as you know, an illustration of it. So people that are interested in investing can follow it and can compare it to what they're doing. But part of the reason I did this is because I see people making very poor financial decisions. And they never invest millennials as a generation. That's what I'm a part of. Uh, You know, there's all these statistics showing that we're investing lower amounts than any other generation. We're wrapped up in debt and school debt. We have other obligations. We're not buying homes. You know, all these things that are financially not great things. So I've been able to get myself into financially a good situation overall. And I think it comes down to financial knowledge. I thought it'd be interesting to look at people's interests and compare it with different metrics like their income and their net worth. I'm putting up something on the screen here if you're listening to it. It is the Wall Street Journal audience profile. What this is is When a company like the Wall Street Journal or any main publisher, when they're looking for advertisers, like if my YouTube channel, I want to look for advertisers, they're going to want to know some statistics. So they can see the views on my video, but they want to know what their conversion rate is going to be, the type of demographic that watches my video, all that type of stuff. Now, the Wall Street Journal is able to collect a lot of information that you're not able to collect on YouTube. So I don't have information on how much money you make on YouTube, but the Wall Street Journal is able to collect that information through surveys and different things. And this is the demographic Graphic that reads the Wall Street Journal men and women it's 62 percent male 38 percent female um, average age is 43 the average household income is two hundred and forty two thousand dollars the average household net worth of Wall Street Journal reader is one million four hundred eighty nine thousand that's average 1 million four hundred and eighty nine thousand now let's go ahead and look at another financial journal, just another one that's based around investing around finance and see what their demographic is. This is the Financial Times. This is one of the the biggest financial journals in the world. Consumer audience, it says here, surrounded by the finest things that life has to offer, our readers are some of the wealthiest and discernible consumers on the planet. Wealthiest and discernible. They say that the average annual household income of a Financial Times reader, 206,000. The average net worth, 1.3 million. Pretty incredible there. That's a pretty amazing audience that they have there. Now, you might say, well, Joseph, the reason is, is because these websites have paywalls. The Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal, they charge a membership to to be able to be a reader of their content. And those memberships are pretty steep pricing, right? Wall Street Journal is like over 40 bucks a month. Okay, well, let's look at another example here. Seekingalpha.com. This is a website that doesn't focus on anything else but investing. So anything else but finance. And they have no paywall. So you can read a large portion of their content without having any kind of membership fee. They get fifteen point two million monthly visitors. Their average household income of one of their visitors is three hundred and twenty one thousand. The average investable assets, so the net worth, is one million five hundred and eighty thousand. All of a sudden it makes it so that the paywall thing doesn't really hold water because we have an example here of a investing-related website that has no paywall, that both the numbers, the average household income and the average investable assets of their readers is higher than the Wall Street Journal or Financial Times. Now, obviously, I'm looking at this information, these media kits that they provide to advertisers that give this information on people's household income and their amount of net worth, and I go, that's a that's a lot. That's way higher than average. $300,000, $250,000 a year is what they're earning, and then investable assets, their net worth is over a million dollars. A million and a half average that is way above the average american the average american when you retire is like a little over a hundred thousand dollars net worth that's where most people are at and obviously people know that your average household income is not anywhere close to 250,000 or 300,000 this is way above the average so i thought well what, what is it? What's the connection here? People that are reading this information and the fact that they earn so much more. You can compare this to other websites like the Washington Post. This is where you go less into investing, less into business. You go more into politics. The Washington Post has most of its readers over 50 percent earn over seventy five thousand dollars. earn over $100,000. Substantially lower than the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, or you know Seeking Alpha. And it doesn't even say their net worth. They don't have data on that. But my guess is that it would be substantially lower. Now, these aren't necessarily dumb people or uneducated reading the Washington Post. Most of them are college graduates. So these are educated people, but their interests are different. And I'm not suggesting to go and subscribe to the Wall Street Journal or Financial Times and that will make you rich. That's not What I'm suggesting here, what I am strongly suggesting is that learning about finance, learning about money and business and how to invest, how to grow your wealth will substantially affect outcomes of the amount of money that you're not only able to make, but the amount of wealth that you're able to generate over your lifetime. And as we saw in this article, this is a study that came out that showed that there is a trend of Americans becoming less and less financially literate, that we're becoming financially dumber over time. This says in one part that between 2009 2018, there was an 8% decline in the amount of people who could correctly answer most questions about interest rates, inflation, bond prices, financial risks, and mortgage rates from 42% to 34%. 34% of people know about these different subjects and can answer questions about them correctly. That is really kind of depressing and concerning statistic that the type of knowledge that allows people to be able to create wealth, to generate stability, to not have financial anxieties, we're having less and less of that over time. There's a graph here that shows from 2009, you can see the steady decline of it. So this channel and this portfolio, it's not just dividend growth investing. That's just a strategy. You know, you can replace that for a lot of different things. The whole purpose of it is to gain financial knowledge. So that's what I'm doing with this. I'm showing my investing strategy. I'm showing ways that I've used to put myself in a, a pretty advantageous situation over the years. Now I'll be answering questions specific from viewers later in the show but I want to talk about a couple different news items here first. So the first thing I want to look at is Netflix. Uh, Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, did an interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin who is he did a really good interview. So this is a great interview. He asks him specifically about Streaming Wars, about all these different companies entering into the market that Netflix essentially created, the streaming market. So the first question he asks him is basically what do you think of all these competitors entering into this market?
1: And so my question is now that you see what's happening in this ecosystem, an yeah. ecosystem which you effectively have created or at least inspired, what you think is going to happen? You look at Disney+, Plus, you look at HBO Max on one side, um, you obviously have Hulu still in, in, in the middle of this, Huge. Yeah. Um, Apple, what, is it, what does it look like to you? So there's a lot of competitors all throughout the world, but if you're
2: asking in the U.S. market, um, YouTube, Hulu, Amazon Prime, Netflix, all launched 2007, 2008, so 11 years ago. The four of us have been, you know, competing hard for all this time. Um, And then everyone's realized, wow, this Internet thing really works. And consumers are enjoying it. And so now all the major media companies are investing in their own services. Um, And it's great for consumers. There will be some more competition for us, but we've already got a lot of competition. Um, And most of it is people will watch less linear TV and now watch, say, Disney content on the Disney Plus service.
0: So his answer here that you know, we already got a lot of competition. He said in the past, Rita said in the past that his biggest competitor is not HBO, right? He said that Fortnite is a bigger competitor than HBO. So Netflix views Fortnite as a bigger competitor. They view browsing on Facebook as a competitor. They view, you know, taking a nap as a competitor. He said sleep is a competitor to Netflix. So he views anything that consumes your time after 5 p.m., as a competitor to Netflix, he frames it this way, where these new streaming services, all these things entering in, these aren't really new competitors to Netflix. That's the way that he tries framing this. And I do agree with him to some extent. So after this answer where he frames it as well, everybody's competition, Andrew Ross Sorkin, being a really good interviewer here, he presses him further on this. He goes and digs deeper saying, well, do you actually see Disney as a specific competitor? Do you think people will choose between Netflix and Disney or choose between Apple TV and Netflix? You know, not
2: in terms of subscribing. People will subscribe to a couple services the way that they subscribe to a couple news services. Um, but then in terms of time, that's the real competition. The tricky thing in this streaming war is, you know, Apple and uh, Disney's not going to break out revenue for the service. And you'll hear some subscriber numbers, but you can just bundle things in, so that's not going to be that relevant. So the real measurement will be time, how do consumers vote um, with their evenings, and do they end up watching uh, what mix of all the services. So starting in Q1, you'll start to see a, a breakout of that like from Nielsen and others.
0: Now this answer from Reed. He's saying the subscription base is not the best indicator because, you know, you can give away subscriptions for free like Apple's doing where they bundle it with a device. They give a year subscription. So just having a subscriber number is not what he considers a good indicator. He's saying that watch time is a good indicator, which I agree with that. But as Netflix has been growing, the story of Netflix's growth has been subscriber growth. That has been the entire story they have told for the last ten years is look how many subscribers were predicted to grow, look how many subscribers we have grown over and over and over again. Every quarter it's the subscribership growth. Now since there's competition entering and companies like Disney growing ten million subscribers in one day, all of a sudden it's not subscriber growth that that's not really a good metric. We should look at something else. We should look at watch time, right? a, a completely different metric. And I think he sees that Netflix is probably an easier one to have a lot of watch time because they have a massive amount of content that you can kind of just leave on autoplay in the background. So I think that that's a very uh, convenient shift in metrics of success that Netflix has made. I've not seen it previously where watch time has been the biggest indicator of their success in the past, but now he's saying that that is their main indicator they look for. Now, this next question is interesting because he's asked actually about something different. He's asked about Quibi and these other streaming platforms, mobile platforms, and Andrew is trying to get a fill for what Netflix is concerned about as far as the different platforms and content out there. Reed keeps bringing it back to Disney. He shows that out of all the companies that are creating content out there and all of them that have streaming platforms, I really think it's clear that he sees Disney as the bigger threat than any of the rest of them.
1: Are you long Quibi?
2: I don't Quibi mean, When's Quibi coming out next year sometime, right? Next year? <laughs> You're not focused on it, clearly. You know, Disney's been, I mean, those are great guys, but, you know, Disney's an amazing company, and I think they're going to have great success. Is that the one you worry about today? I'm not saying we worry about it. We admire them. I mean, you know, I'll subscribe. They've got great shows. It's, you know, uh, they're a wonderful competitor because they really understand creativity. We learn, we observe, we watch them. Uh, we admire the heck out of him.
0: So here he is saying he admires Disney. He's fawning over Disney and he's asked about Apple, and this is his response to it. What about Apple?
2: You know, there's a bunch of tech companies um, that are in entertainment, but I think, uh, you know, Disney's the one that we really have the most to learn from in terms of entertainment.
0: Do you hear his reaction when he talks about Apple? How quickly he dismisses it? Oh, there's a bunch of tech guys getting into entertainment, but Disney's the one that we have the most to learn from. He discredits them as tech companies getting into entertainment. Netflix started as a tech company. That's all it was. It was just a technology platform that delivered content. They didn't create any content when they first started. So he's discrediting tech companies getting into streaming when his own company started that way. I think it was a little bit ironic the way that he treats Apple as a competitor there. Now, this next question, I think, is very interesting. It goes over what Reed thinks of the potential of Apple being the store owner, the one that ranks the apps, the one that lists them. Having an inherent advantage there with their own streaming service. And if you recall, I've done a previous episode on this where Spotify sued Apple for what they believe is unfair treatment in their app store for Apple being able to charge whenever you subscribe to Spotify through their app store. And I thought it was kind of ridiculous, a lot of the claims that Spotify was making. It's this huge ongoing lawsuit where Apple is being sued by Spotify and they've released this big statement here where they go in and they detail all the things that they've done for Spotify to help promote them. And, you know, there's both sides to that. But Reed is asked about this very thing, which I thought was very enlightening because if you go to Netflix on your app store, on your iPhone or your iPad or any Apple device in the app store, you cannot sign up through Netflix through it. And the reason why is if you did sign up that way, Apple would take 30% of the revenue for the first year and then 10% for all subsequent years. So Netflix says, well, we don't want Apple taking that chunk of our revenue. So what we'll do is just force people to sign up online. We'll just force them to sign up on the desktop and then they can go in and log in on their mobile device. Right. And Reed is asked about whether he thinks that that's fair practice or fair play while this lawsuit is going on between Spotify. So Spotify clearly doesn't think it's fair. You know, they're going after Apple because of it. They're asking European regulators to step in and shut down what Apple's doing, make it so that they treat Spotify fairly.
1: So you don't worry about your app being advantage or disadvantage rather no, to others not. at all. If Del yeah, Delrahim I mean, were here, because by the way, he's calling and talking to competitors, you would sit with him and say what?
2: I would say these are all app stores. People download the app or in the app store.
1: Um, and it doesn't bother you if, if someone types in TV that they're not gonna, that Netflix is, may not pop up number one. If, uh, if somebody
0: else has. Know,
2: people know about Netflix and they want that app, and I don't think its ranking is going to make a difference in the store.
0: Thank you, Reed, for pointing this out. I completely agree with him here. This whole complaint from Spotify, at least this side of it where they're saying, hey, Apple is treating us unfairly in the App Store. They're not listing us correctly. Spotify is like the top streaming service in the world. They're one of, if not the most well-known streaming service in the world. I don't think there's been ever a person that has a Spotify account that signed up for it, gone to the App Store and searched music and then been upset when it's not the top result. When Spotify app isn't the top result to searching something like music, oh, it's the third or fourth one, so I'm not going to download it. That's never happened. People don't care about the search rankings in the app store. Uh, If somebody wants to download the Spotify app, they're going to go on their iPhone, type in Spotify, it's the top result there, and they'll download it. Reed's saying the same thing, that if people want Netflix, they know about it, they're just going to type it in and download it. As far as being able to sign up on mobile Again, I think that's a pretty big non-issue. Most people have some kind of web browser they have access to. They can sign up for the service there and log in on mobile. That's what they've been doing with Netflix. And as far as Netflix is concerned, Reed has a lot of reason here. I think he has more reason to be upset about any unfair practices in the App Store than Spotify does. Netflix is a direct competitor to Apple. They're both going into content creation. So if there is unfair practice, Reed, he he would voice it. He would say that this is unfair. It's hurting our company. He doesn't think that that's the case. I happen to agree with him here. I think that a lot of this is just a big non-issue. Now, the last question that I'll highlight from this interview is, it's funny, it's from Brian Stelter. And he's asking about what Netflix sees as the declining business of cable TV, of linear television. Because Reid has said that he thinks that this business will decline over time. And Brian Stelter here asks him specifically about it.
2: Uh, But here's a question that uh, both relates to Andrew and I, both of our jobs. Uh, You talk about linear TV declining. It is declining. Uh, The the, the argument from cable operators is live news and sports is what will always keep people tethered to cable. Are they wrong? Do you think 10, 20 years out, is even live news and sports going to be off on Netflix? I think the big driver on sports going on the internet will be 4K and being able to do live 4K. I don't think the television broadcast industry's going to convert there um, because, again, then you can pick off just the homes who have 4K and so you can offer it early. Uh, not sure on news. Um, and again, I, I think what's going to happen in linear is probably a very slow decline over many, many years. So think of broadcast, how it lost share against cable networks, and it lost 2 or 3% you know, um, share uh, for 25 years. Um, or you think about fixed-line telephones to mobile. Fixed-line went down very slowly. Even AOL declined quite slowly um competed uh by you know broadband. So and you know I don't think there's any demise in the short term cable will just drift and remember the cable companies have broadband so they're going to make a money as they sell us all you know 1 gigabit packages.
0: I love this answer from Reed because he's in a room full of people that a lot of them are employed by linear cable television. Like Brian Stelter there, right? This is CNN linear cable old fashioned news runs 24/7 and He's predicted that this is in a decline. He doesn't think it's going to stop. He thinks that things will continue to move online into these different newer services like Netflix, Disney Plus, and away from the old cable model. I think the only part that I don't agree with him with is that he thinks it's going to be a slow decline of cable. I think it will be a pretty quick decline of cable. You look at services like YouTube, what you're watching right now, how does cable compete with something like this? Every single video from every show is spliced up, put into bite-sized chunks. You have a homepage that you can subscribe to specifically curated content that exactly tailored to your specific interests. When you go and you subscribe to something and view content and consume it, YouTube has advanced algorithms that recommend similar content that is guided towards your interests. This entire system is way above anything that cable can do right now. Cable is a linear line of content that just feeds you this ad-ridden, old-fashioned, 24-7 content that you have no control over, but you're really interested in it. You can flip the channel. You might be able to record shows on it. That is not the way people want to consume content anymore. And then I even look at the numbers. Like this channel on YouTube, I'm this tiny person on YouTube, and in the past month, we've had 10 years worth of content consumed, 90,000 hours plus of content consumed. The past two videos that I've put out have had over 150,000 views combined. This is from somebody that's making content as a side thing to my normal eight to five job. So when you talk about the decline in, in linear television in these shows that I believe were mostly popular, cable news and all these type of things, I think they're mostly popular because audiences didn't have any other choice. Your television was really the only content that you had to be able to consume. Now we have a lot of other options. There's a lot of studies, a lot of things showing that uh, younger generation, people under 20 heavily prefer YouTube over any other source of content, that they rather watch YouTube in the evenings than even Netflix or Disney Plus or any other source. But they definitely rather, outside of YouTube, watch Netflix or Disney Plus over cable. Cable is kind of the last option for most people. So I think as time goes on, I think it will be a pretty rapid move from cable TV to these newer streaming services. The way that they produce content and provide it to people is in such a a, a better, more up-to-date format that people want. All right, now moving on from the streaming wars, I have to quickly mention this item of news. So Carl Icahn is placing a big bet against mall owners, which... If I go over to my real estate pie here, this is it right here. You can see that I own, these are all real estate REITs, real estate investment trusts, which mean you invest in a company and that company owns a lot of different real estate. Now, most of these are not mall REITs like Well Tower, you know, LTC properties are like healthcare, nursing facilities, Realty Income Corp are standalone buildings like Walgreens and Walmart. They lease them out to these companies, but Simon property is malls. So this is what Carl Icahn is betting against. Companies like Simon Property that are mall owners right now. How is he betting against malls? It says here that Mr. Icahn has been purchasing insurance contracts called credit default swaps. If you have watched the big short, that movie, your ears will be buzzing there, credit default swaps. It says the contracts provide holders with protection against defaults to commercial-backed securities that include debt of malls and their borrowers. So they're insurance contracts where if a mall tenant can't pay their debt the person owning those contracts will get paid the insurance. So that's the way that he's using to bet against malls. Further down in this article, it says, though many malls and shopping centers have suffered deteriorating income, only three of the roughly 40 malls and shopping centers linked to the CMBX6, that's an index that tracks shopping malls, have been delinquent on their loans since 2012, according to TREP LLC, a real estate data provider. So, This has been a heavy bet. A lot of hedge funds like Carl Icahn have been betting against malls and they have been losing money in the process because malls have not been going down as far as people predict. There's been a little bit of suffering, but they really haven't dropped in value as much as people predict. This is one of the counter arguments. This is a guy named Brian Phillips, the director of commercial real estate. He says the short sellers are peddling a false narrative. They're focused on momentum rather than credit fundamentals. So he doesn't agree with him there, but it'll be interesting. I'll keep monitoring this. I think Simon property is a good holding. It's by far one of the more riskier ones that I have because we have Amazon beating up a lot of malls, taking a lot of business from some of them, but there's a bear case and a bull case for malls. I think that there's still going to be a place for them in the future. Some of the local malls around where I live are jam-packed on the weekend. I mean, they're miserable to go to because there's so many people there shopping. So There's still people that like to get out. You know, not everybody loves buying everything on Amazon. A lot of people do like to go and shop at malls. All right, so time for some questions here. I put a post out saying that I'm going to have some more time over the next month or so, over the holidays, answer your guys' questions. So I did get a lot of questions, hundreds of them, probably 200 plus questions from people. So if you wrote in a question, I'll try to get around to them. But, you know, if I'm ignoring you for a week, I promise you I'm reading them. I'm trying to respond to as many as I can. You can write me at josephcarlsonshow at gmail.com or message me on Twitter or Instagram. The first one is from Casey. He says, hey, Joseph, what would you say are some keys to raising kids that would be self-sufficient, not become spoiled, and want to invest like their parents? I'm not a father, but I'm sure that will change one day. Any book recommendations? P.S. I'm still gunning for your portfolio value. I'm a former collegiate athlete and naturally motivated by competition, even if completely one-sided and imagined. I love the show. Keep it up. Also, you will sell everything during the next recession, Casey. I love the little last line there. You'll sell during the next recession. For people who don't know what he's talking about there, that's a callback to the previous episode. But Casey, you stay that you're still gunning for my portfolio value and that you're going to pass it up. Uh, I don't plan on letting that happen. So I want you to give me updates on where you're at with your portfolio. And whenever yours starts getting close to mine, I'm going to go ahead and deposit more money just to keep ahead of you. That's the sole reason for doing it. And I don't care if I have to, you know, if I run out of savings, my emergency fund, if I have to take out a second mortgage on my home, if I have to start selling furniture in my house, I plan on staying ahead of your portfolio value. So let me know where you're at so I can keep ahead of you on that. Now to your actual question, you know, you say, what are some keys to raising kids that will be self-sufficient, not become spoiled and want to invest like their parents? Uh, That's a That's a good question. Obviously, it's something I've thought about a lot as I have two kids. You know, I want them to have all of those things. I think about some things that my dad did that, you know, he repeated the same messages over and over again. And if you're a parent and you repeat the same thing over and over again, that starts to stick with you after a while. One of the messages that he repeated, I'm sure it's something that he read. It's like a message in Rich Dad, Poor Dad, that type of thing. But he said something to the extent of people who understand interest earn it. People who don't understand it pay it. The only type of debt that he took in was debt that other people were paying for, meaning that he would take out debt, buy a rental property, and then those rental properties would be paid for by the people living in them. He would be the owner that would, you know, manage them and that type of thing. The people going to work and coming back and living in those rentals, they were the ones paying all the interest on those. They were the ones paying the mortgage on that. That was one thing that he repeated often. And another thing is he would include us in on everything. So we would work at the rentals all the time. We'd mow the lawns. We'd go and paint the walls. We'd replace toilets. We would unclog drains. We did all of that stuff all the time. And granted, I hated it when I was a kid because it's hard labor. I didn't understand, you know, the real benefit of that. But I do have memories of him being in his office. And it was at the beginning of the month where he would go and collect rent. And this is where, uh, you know, he's kind of old-fashioned where he'd just pick up checks. And he'd have a stack of like 16 checks on his desk. And he'd go... And you'd go through check after check after check. And you'd say, these are what I earned this month in rent. I don't have to do too much for this money. That's what owning apartments does. That's what owning these rentals do. When you see somebody flipping through a stack of checks that are each hundreds of dollars that he went and just collected for the effort of them just living in a place that he owns. That sticks with you. Those type of memories stick with you. And that's why on this channel, I've done routinely over and over again. A lot of people have seen it a lot of times. It's something that I'm going to continue to do, to go to the activity page of my broker and show dividend after dividend after dividend coming in. Because when you see that happening, when you see the money start to flow in your portfolio, all the concerns about, you know, did I buy at the exact right time? Did I do this or that? They start to fade away when you realize that this is overall a good thing. That when you invest and things are paying you residual money over and over again, that's a really good thing. I saw that all the time with my dad. He would go and collect the checks. He would say, oh, it's the biggest pain having to take all this money to the bank, right? He's just as sarcastic as I am. So he would complain about having to take all of this money to the bank all the time. He has a coin-up washer in one of them. And he would say, sometimes the washer breaks because it's so full of coins, right? They can't fit any more coins in it. So they'll call me saying that the coin-up washer is broken. I'll have to go and open it up and it has about 120 bucks in it. So as far as my actual piece of advice on this is, if you want your kids to be involved in investing, to be excited about it, to learn about finance and investing in these topics, uh, you actually have to talk to them about this subject. You have to bring it up routinely. Um, We live in a culture and a society where, you know, finance is an improper subject to talk about, and a lot of families don't talk about it, even to each other, A lot of spouses don't really talk about finances all that much. And especially, you know, traditionally, it's the role of the parents just to go out and earn money to provide for the children. But you never have any discussions with the children on how you're doing that, the type of things that you do to create value and how you invest. Those subjects are never talked about in families. And I think that that's a huge mistake. I mean, heaven forbid, if you talk about finance and investing to your kids, they might accidentally learn something about it. That's the consequence of talking about different subjects with your kids is some of it they might pick up on after a while. So I think it's repetition, continually bringing these subjects up. You can do it in a very informative way that doesn't create stress for the kid. You you don't bring up any real hardships, but you just inform them on how to create value, what you do to create value. Uh, how you can serve other people, how you can invest, all those type of things. If you do that routinely, your kid's gonna pick up a lot of it. They're like little sponges. They just listen to what you have to say and they'll eventually pick up on what you're saying. As far as the other things, you know, making your kids become self-sufficient, not becoming spoiled when they get older, uh, my dad kept a tally of the money that I spent when I was like in junior high and high school. If I went out with friends and went to the movies and I spent 15 bucks, 20 bucks, he would track that down on an Excel sheet and he still has the file. It's like this 500 page long Excel sheet where he would track every single expense, what I went to, what I did, he would put in movie theater with friends, how much money that I borrowed from him, and then he would keep a tally. It had an equation that just summed up on one column how much I owe him, and when we would work at the apartments, I'd pay back that money. So I've done that since junior high and high school. Whenever I wanted to buy something new or go get a new longboard, go to the movies, you know, do something for myself, I realized, man, this is going to go on the Excel sheet and the next time I'm going to have to mow lawns, I'm going to have to paint different rooms, I'm going to have to work this off. So what that does is that ties together consumption and production. I had a relationship between if I consumed this much, relatively, I'm going to have to produce this much you know, I'm going to have to go and work for this long to be able to consume these different items, to be able to purchase these different items. you gain a relationship there between consumption and production, you have to establish that with your kids at some point. If They get into college and they have no idea between consumption and production. if There's no relationship there. They will just consume and consume and consume, take out loans, take out loans, take out loans. The government will aid them in taking out loans that they have no idea how much money they're going to be paying back over time. And once they do figure out, oh boy, this is a lot more consumption than I thought. And to be able to produce this much value to pay this back is really difficult. I should have consumed a lot less. I should have taken out a lot less loans. You know, I should have been a lot more frugal. So establish that relationship between production and consumption early on in life. You can do that just by showing them in order to purchase these things, you have to work for this long. It's a very simple, straightforward relationship there. Gail says, good morning, Joseph. First, let me say I appreciate your unencumbered, comprehensive, and honest approach to teaching about investing and explaining these related financial topics. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. She says, yesterday, I saw back and forth on Instagram regarding savings accounts versus dividend stocks. One person said that he doesn't think investing for dividends makes sense at all when savings accounts is giving you more return on your money and you don't have to take the risk of losing interest you made. He followed by saying that if this was a strategy to buy stocks, wait until the price goes up. Well, wait until the price goes up and then pocket the money. He then can get with the idea of stock investing. Could you speak on this in one of your videos? Uh, yeah, Gail. So this person has, they don't know what they're talking about. So, I mean, some people, they have the right idea. Some people really, they haven't researched a topic. They don't really know what they're saying on it. Savings accounts aren't anything like investing in dividend stocks. One of them, you're putting your money in an FDIC-insured bank where your money is not invested. Savings accounts aren't investments. You're just storing your money, and the bank is using your money to invest. Your money, you didn't buy anything with it, right? You're just storing it. With dividend stocks, you're buying a portion of a company. And even if the interest rate is similar in a savings account, a high-yield savings account, to the dividend yield of a dividend stock, so if a dividend stock is paying 2% yield and a high-yield savings account is about a 2% interest rate the return is not going to be similar with them. Dividends are only one part of the return that you get investing in dividend stocks. So if you look at my account, I make a portion of my income through dividends. That's a part of the return. The other part is capital appreciation. Now I focus mostly on dividends. That's the part where most of my investment decisions focus around, but that does not mean that you're eliminating that other part of the return. In my portfolio over the past two years, I've made a $9,000 return. I could sell it right now and I'd be out $9,000 more than I put in. If I put that money in a high yield savings account, I would make maybe 1600 bucks. So $1,600 to $9,000, not even close. This person doesn't know what they're talking about. If you want to invest by putting your money into a savings account, you'll never become wealthy doing that. The next question says, hey, Joseph, first off, I recently discovered your channel and right now watching your videos instead of studying is one of my favorite ways to procrastinate. So keep it up. Uh, I, I don't know whether that's a good thing or not, but I appreciate that. He says, my question is, as I'm not an American citizen, I'm from Europe, Austria. Are there any other alternatives to M1 Finance with the same benefits, no transaction fees, general UI, auto invest that you would recommend? This is due to the fact that setting up an M1 Finance account requires you to be a U.S. citizen with a permanent U.S. residence. I suppose I'm not the only non-U.S. viewer. Therefore, I think that this would be an interesting question. Uh, Yeah, so I get this question a lot. M1 Finance, the broker that I use, I think it's a fantastic broker. I've used it for two years now, and I really, really like it. And of course, people find out that it's only available if you live in the US, which is a huge bummer because about 30% of my audience lives outside of the US. So there's a lot of people that see me using this. and They're going, man, that looks amazing. I wish that we had something like that where I live, right? And then you're left looking for other brokers, which frankly, to be honest, you're asking, is there anything else that is the same as M1 Finance? There's not anything else the same as M1 Finance. There's not even a a, like same broker in the US that's the same as M1 Finance. So outside of the US, I have not found one that exists and believe me, I've looked. What I will do is give you some recommendations of ones to potentially look at if you're outside of the US. So the first one, the first one here, I think it's called DeGiro, D-E-G-I-R-O. This is a European broker. I have the page up here, and you can look at all the different countries that it's available in. And this one, again, there's nothing like M1 Finance. This one doesn't have fractional shares. They charge for trades. But they have, I think, pretty minimal fees in comparison to most other brokers. And I think the interface is pretty cool. Seems like a pretty you know, modern design to their app, really sleek and simplistic. So this is one to look at. I've never used it. I don't have any personal experience with it. I'm just restating things that I've heard from other Europeans. So DeGiro is one to look at. You can go to DeGiro.eu to go to this one or just Google search it. Another one, Interactive Brokers. This one, again, it's an international broker. I think they're available in almost every country. This one's most likely available where you live. Now this one, I've looked at screenshots of the dashboard. I definitely think it's a more complex, sophisticated interface, not really something that appeals to me. It's not really a simplistic interface, but it's another option to look at. It's another broker that I've heard good things about from other people. And then there's some of the the big American ones, Fidelity. They offer some international support and Schwab also offers some international support. Give them a call, see what they can offer and decide which one you want to use. Kane says, hi, Joseph. I love your show. It's literally the only show I look forward to all week. Well, that and The Mandalorian now. I was wondering, um, on The Mandalorian, what a great show. The first episode I said that, uh, you know, is is great. You know, it wasn't groundbreaking, but I thought it was a great episode. And then I liked the second one even more. And I will say, um, this is a spoiler alert. So if you haven't seen the show, this is a spoiler alert. But Baby Yoda, as soon as I saw that, I'm like, Disney just made a billion more dollars. They're going to sell that stuffed animal of Baby Yoda Right there, they just made themselves a billion dollars in toy baby Yoda sales. Everybody's going to want one of those. But anyway, back to your question. You say, and I was wondering when it would be okay to rebalance the portfolio. Like a lot of other people that write in, I'm following your portfolio, but I'm doing it in my Roth IRA instead of a regular brokerage account. As I understand it, I wouldn't have to worry about taxes because of this type of account. Is there any point to rebalancing since M1 will automatically buy underweight holdings? Thanks for any advice you have on the subject. Okay, so the biggest disadvantage to rebalancing a portfolio, the most negative thing that happens is it triggers cells in your portfolio. So taxes are the biggest downside to rebalancing. There's a few other small things to consider, but taxes are the big thing. If it's in your Roth IRA, there's no tax implications to rebalancing. So what I would do is if you started the portfolio, if it's way out of balance, I would just hit rebalance and rebalance at once. I don't think that's a big deal but I wouldn't rebalance on a routine schedule because like you said, M1 will automatically buy the underweight holdings. So there's no reason to do that. If your portfolio is a little bit out of balance, just wait till you can contribute more money, wait till the dividends go in and they purchase those underweight holdings. I wouldn't make a habit of continually hitting that rebalance button. All right. Well, that's going to be it for me today. I'll have some more videos out for you soon. If you guys want to follow that, you can consider hitting that subscribe button. If you enjoy the content, be sure to like the video. That helps the YouTube algorithm recommend it to other people and find out about this. So I appreciate it whenever you do that. Um, And if you guys want to join in more of a direct conversation, there is a link to Discord. You just join the Patreon. That's a way to support the channel directly. So you can consider that as well. But otherwise, I'll talk to you guys next time.